wonder how you could incorporate pop culture in the college classroom? Ever considered the value of comics in teaching history? Or ever want to draw parallels between fandoms and course content? Historically, panels on pop culture in the classroom have prioritized K-12 students, but what about college students? There's a stigma that pop culture, fandom, and comics are not serious enough for them. On Thursday, October 6, 2022, a panel of five university professors from across various disciplines spoke at New York Comic Con. We presented a panel entitled Pop Culture, Fandom, and Comics in the College Classroom. In this panel, we shared how we incorporate pop culture into our own courses and how you might do the same, whether you're a professor or a student. From Taylor Swift to Game of Thrones, Supernatural, Marvel, DC, and more, we discussed the validity of pop culture in the college classroom. What follows here is our panel discussion from that day, along with a brief Q&A from the audience. We lost the answer to the last question, so it may appear to end a bit abruptly, but it does cover almost everything from that hour-long discussion. There will be a link in the show notes to this episode so you can check out the slides that we presented that day and connect with any of the panelists on social media or via email. Special thanks to New York Comic Con, the New York Public Library, and the panelists from that day, Heidi Bollinger, Jennifer Carroccio Maldonado, Tanya Cook, Asif Siddiqui, and myself, Rebecca Salois. There we are. Okay. Um, so I have a list of the panelists here. I'm going to have them introduce themselves in just a moment. And our contact information is here. I'll put it up on the slide at the end as well in case you uh, don't catch it all now. And so I just put a couple of questions up here for the panelists. Uh, who are you? What do you teach? And what pop culture are you into right now? I figured that would be a nice little icebreaker for us. So um, I'll start just to my left. My, yes, my left. Go ahead. Hi, I'm Dr. Heidi Bollinger. I teach at CUNY Ostos, um, which is a community college that serves the South Bronx. I'm the chair of the English department there, and I teach um, literature, composition, and an elective on graphic novels. Uh, right now, I'm into watching Lower Decks and um, catching up on Bob's Burgers, and I'm a real Murder, She Wrote fan, I have to say, <laughs> for life. <laughs> Hi, I'm Tanya Cook. Um, I teach sociology at Community College of Aurora, so I came here despite my very vampire-y look. I'm, I'm here from sunny, beautiful Denver, Colorado. Um, so I probably get some kind of award for traveling the furthest. <laughs> yeah, no, this panel for sure. Um, we all came from New York. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, okay, what else? What am I into? Is that the question? Yeah, what do you teach and what are you? I teach sociology. I am into, I'm enjoying the rings of power. I'm a little surprised how much I'm enjoying that. And also reading a book called The Fifth Season which is a dystopian uh, science fiction novel. It's very, very good. It's kind of a bummer, but it's exciting. Cool world building. So, okay. so um, I'm Asif Siddiqui. I'm a professor here at Fordham University in the Bronx. And uh, I teach, among other things, I teach a course on, uh, on the history of comics. So I'm actually the polygonal historian here. So it has a slightly different kind of analytical bent, which I'll talk about. I uh, and um, I have, um, but I'm actually a sort of science. I'm science for you. I also write on pop music. I don't know what's other things. So, uh, what am I into right now? I guess um, I've been watching that um, Andor show, which is kind of cool, surprisingly good, and uh, and listening to lots of music. I guess that's kind of 
mainstream to be a nerd now, which is great. Um, so we really, I think capitalizing on that is fantastic. Um, but at the same time, my job as an educator is not to get tangled up in the intricacies of the Marvel universe, but to use a thread or a through line to help students explore the deep themes of this literature. Um, we often start out with informal writing prompts that help the students start exploring the themes. Like my favorite one up there is about what superpower would you want and why, and what would you sacrifice to, to gain that superpower? And that leads into surprisingly personal and thoughtful discussions. Um, and students have really compelling reasons, and, and they deeply understand the idea of um, you know, the isolation of being a superhero and um, the idea of being an outsider but being special really resonates with them, I find. Um, I also find that this turned out to be the most complex and ambiguous text that students wrote about um, because it raises a lot of questions about the human experience that it doesn't answer. Um, if we could maybe go to the next slide. Um, so we use a lot of, again, writing to discover activities to build to a formal paper, thinking about what can this story of monsters or synthesoids reveal to us about the human experience? Um, in what ways are the, the, the vision and his synthesoid family human or not human? What does that mean? Um, is his flaw wanting to be more human? Is his failure to become more human? What makes him human? The paradox of that is really compelling for students. Um, and so again, this theme, these themes of outsiders, monsters, community, belonging, really resonate with my students who are largely students of color, um, many of whom are um, first-generation Americans, first-generation college students. So in an allegorical or metaphorical way, this, this really appeals to them. The other thing I wanted to mention is that comics as serious literature are a good way to introduce students to um, the genealogical conversation outside of Marvel. So as you can see um, in the second image in the middle, um, uh, the character is reading uh, Shakespeare's The Merchant of Venice. And this, that text becomes a significant flashpoint. And my students are not familiar with that play, so we have to explain the, the character of Iago as an outsider. And, how, and then we think about how might that help us understand these Marvel characters more, and how does it add more layers? Um, not that Shakespeare, I'm not elevating Shakespeare above, I'm just saying there's a conversation, and this is a really interesting network of texts that we have. Um, also, in the, the last image, you'll see there's a Roy Lichtenstein um, pop art painting. Um, and that idea of a painting being like a copy of a copy of a copy, um, as Scott McCloud also references, um, really resonates nicely with the synthesoids being kind of like copies of humans or um, simulacrum of humans. So it, it gets very intricate, actually. Um, and, and so students can. Um, write a whole paper just exploring one of these kind of human questions, um, and they, they love it. So I'll just stop there and save the rest for questions if there's any later. Thanks. All right. <laughs> so we're not going down the line because I organized these slides in advance, but um, next up will be Jennifer. 
Um, yeah, so for a course called Pop Culture in the Media, um, I was working with um, adaptation theory with my students um, because I feel like if they might not know the source material of the comics, they definitely know the movies or animated series. Um, and one of, I think, my biggest goals has been um, with bringing comics into the classroom is to have students see that there's a place for them um, and then also see that there's a place for them in comic fan fandom uh, specifically. Um, and so I had them look at clips and read the original Uncanny X-Men uh, Days of Future Past. Um, then we watched the animated show, which um, also had adapted that, um, that storyline into uh, the animated series. Um, and then much uh, contested uh, film adaptation also um, did uh, their own version. So we kind of um, use that as a way to think about um, what does it mean to adapt a story through different mediums. Um, and also, uh, particularly with the visuality of comics, um, animated shows, and movies, it's a great way for students to think about the body and the way that it's race, class, gendered, um, and ability. Uh, not only super ability, but disability as well. Um, so we, I had them thinking um, through a cultural lens of how we can use particularly um, the different storylines within X-Men to think of ways of talking about marginalization specifically. And so some of the discussion questions I had them work with often in small groups was um, thinking about the ideology behind these comics, um, I, that's something I have them think about as well within um, the media, particularly about socialization. What are the lessons that we learn? What do we learn about other people? What do we learn about the world through what we watch, read, engage in? Um, and then when it came to X-Men particularly, it's how are these um, different than the previous superheroes? So, more, you know, X-Men, not X-Men, Superman, um, Batman, uh, um, and other, other comics, um, superheroes that we, we studied. And particularly looking at the so social issues that are being alluded to, looking at those allegories that are being made. Um, and then as well thinking about in the kind of larger concept of pop culture, what is you know, the story of X-Men or the characters? Um, why have they become kind of going from fringe into more mainstream into pop culture? And then also um, looking at how the medium affects the message, I think it's important um, to think about, particularly with adaptations, um, how that's affecting the message, the story, um, the ideology when it's told in a comic book serialized over years versus an animated series, which as well can you know, run several seasons and then like a standoff movie. And then lastly, um, what is being a mutant metaphor for? Um, so just like the novel before that, comics are a form of literature. And it's a way for students um, to really think about narrative, narrative structure. Um, and then also things like illusion metaphors. Um, and so I've always felt particularly um, the world of X-Men um, is just really rich in that. And there's someone for everyone. Um, and then lastly, I think it's just really important to meet students 
both where they are, so having them, you know, as my other panelists, site coming in with that specialized knowledge, um, but then also allowing them, you know, to talk about those larger issues, particularly with marginalization, um, because I think it's um, unfortunately kind of gets brushed under, and we kind of get boxed up in the metaphor when we're like, all right, if we're actually talking about ableism, um, hence why I'm wearing a mask, or if we're talking about racism or homophobia, what's name those things? So I think it's really important for us as educators um, with students um, to help them to parse that out. I love this. Uh, <laughs> like, I want to steal all of these ideas. This is fantastic. Um, so uh, you're next. Thank you. So uh, as I said, I'm a historian. Um, and the way I teach my class, which is essentially, although it's a, the one I most recently taught, is the history of comics, but it's really focused on the history of the superhero um, genre, particularly. And the way I teach it is mostly uh, as a history of both the comic book as an idiom. Uh, so we look at the history of comics through, let's say, from the 1930s, the original sort of superheroes, um, Superman, Batman, that sort of stuff. Uh, and we track the, the evolution of the, of the comic book idiom uh, for the last uh, you know, 80, 90 years. But we look at content, uh, obviously, but, you know, in terms of how the content of the comic books works as a a uh, mode of uh, uh, you know social critique um, it works as uh, um, but and also as a kind of um, um, record of history. So one of the questions I ask um, my students is how what might we learn about American history through a set of selected comic books from the last 70, 80 years, um, and we kind of go through that process and, and reflect on that a little bit. And I can talk about that more in the Q and A. The other way in which we study comic books is really through um, um, also what we all study. So we study content, uh, we study the industry, we study fandom, um, um, we study the creators, obviously. Uh, but the other way we do it is also through um, what about sort of, sort of the merging of historical questions through comic books. So in this particular example that I offer, which many of you might be familiar, this was in the, in the early, in, I think it's 1971. Stanley and Gil uh, Kane, I don't know if it's Jill or Gil, but Gil Kane was the artist. And um, this was a particularly um, uh, turning, um, important turning point in the history of Spider-Man, in which they sort of confronted it um, and portrayed drug um, use or abuse, uh, which reminds him, Harry Osborne here sort of gets addicted to uh, drugs. And uh, this was a big controversial uh, fulcrum for the history of Marvel, because that was the first time they took off the comics code seal from the comic book, because um, uh, Stan knew that basically they wouldn't allow this to be published. So, um, and this was a big deal to do that at that time. And of course, so we explore, um, you know, how that happened, the implications of that, but also um, how the use of drugs or, or abuse is portrayed in the comic books. What's going on in broader American culture in the early seventies, late sixties? You know, Elvis meeting um, President Nixon uh, to talk about drug use and those kinds of things. So we sort of explore the cultural background of it. And in terms of the content, we really look at um, you know how how are the writers in this case Stan being portraying drug use? Is it is it ham-fisted? Is it is it taking is it portraying an ambiguous sort of an ambiguous position? Is it taking a stand on it? And in this case, there is kind of a stand. It's you know, drugs are bad, and we shouldn't use it. Uh, but there's an interesting thread running through, which is that the drugs that Harry is using are produced by um, uh, Osborne Industries, so which, which is sort of an interesting spin on the corporate malfeasance. Um, uh, and the other example I have um, is uh, very quick, uh, which is this Marvel much more 
contemporary. This is a story, uh, you know, I, there's many ways to parse this story, obviously, as you know, uh, story of uh, an immigrant family, uh, a Muslim American, or you know, the, the, the one way that I think of it as, you know, there is an immigrant narrative here. Uh, so we talk about history of immigration in the U.S. And actually, there's a comparison to a very other famous fictional immigrant, which is Superman, obviously. So uh, we sort of work through the ways in which immigration has been portrayed. Uh, in, in comic books, um, using this as a starting point. We also talk about class in this because there's a, you know, after 2008, this is a, a unusual portrayal of a protagonist who's, whose uh, family is not, you know, super rich or not Tony Stark or something. So they live in Jersey, Jersey City. It's not like glamorous Manhattan. So we kind of work through some of those issues about gay food, American history. Um, yeah, so I'll just stop here. There's a lot, I can say a lot more about it, but it's firmly grounded in history, so the questions are that. The, driven by those kinds of questions. It is also an American history course, so in that way, the students, what the students get out of the course is they, they learn uh, ultimately what does the comic book idiom do, uh, uh, how does it function as a historical form, both as, as a pedagogical tool, how can we learn American history, but also what is the history of comic books and what can that tell us? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Again, love that idea of you know taking the history statistics and putting them side by side with the narrative and yeah. and seeing a more well-rounded picture. Right. All right, Tanya is going to shift us a little bit away from just comics, but to other forms of pop culture as well. Yeah, hopefully. Um, so hi. So I teach sociology, which is a little bit different, and I want to credit a couple sources here quickly because you know teachers, we got to credit academics. Um, one is the book um, Fandom as Classroom Practice, edited by um, Catherine, last name starts with an H, and I'm blanking, I, forgive me. And then my colleague Jennifer Sims, who I graciously allowed me to borrow from uh, her project that she uses in Sociology 100, Introduction to Sociology, which is most of what I teach. So most of my students are going into nursing, they're going into criminal justice, they are not sociology majors. They may or may not um, transfer right to a four-year school. I teach at a community college. But I love the way that fans engage with media and the way that it makes us think. And looking at what fans do, if you make fan bids, if you write fan fiction, right? if you make art, if you cosplay, this is all how we um, kind of express our cultural capital and blend that into making it, making it our own. Um, one of the key tenets of sociology is this idea of structure versus agency, right? Agency being, do you have free will? And the answer is sort of, maybe a little bit, right? And structure being all of the, the world and the, the things you find yourself dealing with. Who better exemplifies that than superheroes, right? Or, or any kind of hero's journey. You've got this path, whether or not you can navigate it, whether or not you can find the one piece and became the pirates, right? Um, I had to throw a One Piece reference in there. So these are some ways that um, I have used fan and fan practices in the classroom. Uh, I'm going to talk, I think, today most specifically about Black Panther homework and, um, let's see, the Sociology of X project is what I call it. So if we can, and I'm happy to talk more about this, you know, offline. Next slide. Yes. Okay, so this is, I, I kind of began with the end in mind, and these are steps in the sociology of X. So working with students, they have to do a, a major out-of-class significant assignment that shows some sociology competencies, right? Just the way that we would kind of reverse design things. Um, so this is kind of where we start. We pick a topic, we do an annotated bibliography, et cetera, et cetera. And then you'll notice um, 
the major step here is the product. So throughout the semester, we, I, in collaboration with the students, we design a project for them that meets their specific learning goals and needs. So the product is called that because it can be a paper, but it can also be a video. It can be a piece of art. And that's what I'm going to show you what students have done. It can be a podcast, which Bex, of course, knows a ton about, more than I do. Um, and it's really, it's really fun. And they, they engage, they choose a fictional world to analyze or a piece of media. That can be anything from One Piece. I do have a student looking at that this semester to Lord of the Rings to X-Men is one that is quite popular. Um, you name it, Bridgerton, like any kind of fictional world, fantasy world. And we make it about sociology somehow so that they can pick sociological content and use it to understand that world better, which then in turn helps them understand those concepts. So it becomes this really cool uh, synergy. And so that word in, okay. Yes. Uh, Let's move ahead. So this is an example of a student who is going, who's a criminal justice major, and she chose the film End of Watch. Do people know this film? I believe I have seen this film, so but you may have to help me a little bit. It's about gay violence and police in, in LA, correct? So she used um, broken windows theories of deviance and other um, learned, um, learned deviance, differential associations theories. So she's really focusing on the theories of crime and deviance in sociology. And this character in the film, she drew this art and drew this, um, these are two original art pieces and then submitted an essay about what everything in this meant and how it connected back to the course concepts. And I just thought it was fantastic, but I get to look at, I don't know, a hundred of these? Things like this every semester, which is, let me tell you, way more fun than reading the same paper that nobody is excited to be doing and I'm not excited to be reading. And um, they often tell me, students, of course, we have to follow up and justify what we're doing, as you all know. Um, and they tell me they spend more time, they learn more doing projects like this than a typical research paper. Yeah, I'll be quiet for now, I guess. All right, everyone's going quite quickly. I was a little nervous because academics were known to speak quite a bit, so. <laughs> um, I'm gonna talk a little bit about two different podcasts that I have hosted that I have used as tools in my classroom that the students then sort of build off of. So the first one is a podcast called Why Do We Read This that I use when I taught the uh, Great Works of Literature class that is a required class for all students at my college. Doesn't matter what their major is, doesn't matter if they've transferred in, every student has to take this class. They can take the old stuff or the new stuff, and new stuff is like 17th century and forward, right? So, <laughs> um, and especially for students who sign up for that ancient text through 1650 half, I want to find a way to make them not necessarily care about the literature. I mean, I hope that happens, but I. I teach at a school that's predominantly business, it, it's very business heavy anyway, and, and so a lot of these students are just taking it for the requirement. So how do I get them to connect with the literature? Why do we read this? Why does it matter? Who cares, right? And so I have a few images up here of episodes that I've done. Uh, the first one you'll see there is uh, Frodo and Samwise, along with Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, and we talk about the idea of um, literary foils and sidekicks and, and sort of the importance of having that other character to balance out and to help you learn. 
about it. And then when they're like, oh, yeah, Lord of the Rings, like everyone's seen that, or most of them have seen that. Uh, it's very tricky to make sure you keep your references uh, enough up to date as the <laughs> students are getting younger and younger. <laughs> Um, another one we read is Hedda Gabler. This is in the more contemporary half. And I did an episode with a colleague who she looked at Hedda's narcissistic behavior, and we talked about narcissism, and she compared it to Mother, Mother Gothel from uh, Tangled. I looked at her as more a victim of society and seeing that she was sort of trapped in this space, and who else is trapped in this space but... Regina George from Mean Girls, right? And and getting them to say like, oh yeah, okay, so this thing maybe it took place in 19th century Norway. Why do I care? Well, because these things are still happening today. And that's my third example is uh, really great because uh, we do these classic Tamil uh, poetry, the, the lyrics from the 11th, 12th century, if I remember correctly. And I'm like, this just reminds me of Taylor Swift lyrics. Like, this is all about the different stages of relationships and different things. And they know that. They connect with that. They understand it. They, some like it, some don't. And tell them you don't have to like everything. Uh, but find something in there. And uh, the final one that I have on here as uh, an image is um, Setna Kamwas which is a piece of literature I wasn't familiar with until my colleague introduced it to me. And she compared it to Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, and like the complex story levels and all of that, which was beyond me, but like for a lot of my gaming students, they got it, right? Um, I looked at Supernatural and that the, the Book of the Damned and that sort of cursed text. So, at the end of the semester, I asked the students to create then their own parallel. Take anything we read in class and find your pop culture. What do you resonate with in the pop culture world? Whether it's comics, whether it's film, uh, anything in between. And you draw that parallel based on one of the themes that we've covered. Uh, the second podcast is one that I'm still working on with a colleague of mine in the Black and Latino Studies department called Latinx Visions. And this is a podcast that we use to demonstrate the ways in which Latinidad is represented in the media or isn't, right? That, that's part of the conversation as well. So it really helps the students investigate like the real world reflections and implications of the works, not just in the Latinx cultures, but the different communities throughout. We focus primarily on US-based um, media, as you can see from some of my examples, right, we've got one day at a time. Uh, with that one, we talked about Latina representation and stereotypes, the difference between leaning in and rejecting stereotypes, but also, um, you know, who's writing these stories and are, are they representative of the culture being portrayed. Um, with Clap When You Land, which is a book by Elizabeth Acevedo, which is phenomenal. It's really great because for students who struggle with poetry, it's like a perfect balance for them. And um, we talk about family dynamics in, in Dominican families in that episode. And we also talk about things like neocolonialism and tourism, which when you're just reading the book, you're just, okay, this is cool, it's a good book. But if you stop and you think about those factors, um, it it adds another layer. One of my favorite episodes was the Spider-Man one, uh, Miles Morales. Of course, I'm a 
absolutely, Spider-Verse is one of my favorite movies, I think. Um, and then can we talk about adaptations, uh, as my colleagues talked about here. Um, with Love, Victor, there's the, um, this idea of positive but safe queer representation, which is really important for many, many of my students will speak up about this, like, hey, you know, I, I'm hesitant to come out to my family for X, Y, and Z reasons. And some of those reasons are dealt with in this show. They would be like machismo and the worries around that in the family and religion. I think that's another one that comes to play in, in that show. And with Pose, we talk about the trans-Latinx communities and we kind of go back into the historical uh, setting. So those are just some of the ways in which we create these, these tools that students can then use to take in like, listen to a podcast instead of reading 80 articles. Like, yeah, you've got to read some articles. You've got to learn how to do that. But if you're sitting on the train on your way to class, like, listen to this episode and, and be able to take in the media in another way. So that's really it for my overview. I did have um, a question for the panelists. And, um, and then if they have any questions they want to ask around too, that would be great. And we'll open it up to you all. But um, my question was, how, what is the student reaction when they find out that they're going to be doing something with comics or pop culture or fandom in your classroom? So I don't know who wants to jump in, if we want to start, maybe down at the end, Jennifer. <laughs> how do your students react when they find out? <laughs> um, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, I definitely have some students, usually the cis men, who are like, oh, I'm the comics comic, I don't know the history of it. Um, and then uh, other students who actually, which are my favorite, are the ones who don't think they're comic nerds. Um, and so after, especially when we read um, Uncanny X-Men, I had a student, um, a woman, who was just like, I'm into comics, I like it, I'm gonna start reading more. Um, and it was like, great, that's kind of what my job is, um, to let you know that you have a place in that fandom, that you have a place um, that you might not think um, you're otherwise welcome to, especially if we think about particularly um, the X-Men series and comics and movies is, a, you know, these ragtag group of people who just don't fit in anywhere. Um, and so I think for me, um, really, if I can be like their first entrance into that and like giving them that space to explore that um, has been really great as like an educator. Is it? Um, yeah, my thoughts are pretty similar to that. I think people come to the class either, or some, some kids do, uh, thinking this is an easy class because, you know, I know the comments, what is this guy going to tell me? So, uh, so they think they have this perception it's just going to be a lot of, a lot of information. And, and, and so I think, so I want to disabuse them of that pretty early on that this is a class that you, know, you can learn a lot of different things. Uh, so I think the, I, I just sense a tension between fandom and learning or critique. And people like, I, you know, I'm a fan myself, so I, I, I've had to unlearn a lot of my, you know, fandom text, which is like, you know, I know more about, you know, I, I spent issue number 139, but, you know, whatever it is. And so you have to sort of unlearn a lot of that. But I, I, but I, I'm, I definitely want to reach the, the students who are um, there for, uh, who are there to, to go deeper and learn something else about it, rather than just a lot of information. The class is not about, 
you know, providing with all the details of the plot, so all these comic books. So I think, yeah, so I think a lot of students just come in thinking it's going to be the easy A, halfway through, like, oh, shit. That's very true, right? Whenever I hit the unit where I'm like, here's some comics, we're going to be like, oh, great, I'll be done with this in five minutes. And I'm like, well, not after I ask you these questions, right? So it's again kind of mixed because they, but this is mine is very designed. Although I did force them to read comics last week, and it's that's fun because students who are familiar can help others. They work in groups and they can help one another with how to read um, these comics, and it just keeps them on their toes. Like, what's she going to do this week? I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's it's great because my favorite comment I get is you've ruined television for me. Or you've ruined blah, blah, blank, blank. Because what they mean is they can't watch it without thinking. And if I hear that, mission accomplished. Like that's that's the goal is that you will critically engage with what you're doing. You're already doing that. So part of what I want them to do is understand they are already engaging with their world and these concepts in the world at an academic level, and they're bringing in their prior knowledge, they're bringing in their community wealth. They just don't understand that they're doing that. They're walking into it with that. So this is about kind of connecting those two worlds and helping them to really feel empowered and, and that they have something to contribute, they have something to say. Um, I've had people do podcasts. I, one, one project I want to mention I think is so fun is Monsters, Inc., so you're like, what What the heck can you do in Monsters, Inc. that relates to sociology? It's about switching from fossil fuels to green energy. <laughs> Did you know that's what Monsters, Inc. was about? Because yeah. I didn't until a student made me think about it, and it, did, it just went. I was like, oh, cute monsters, blah, blah, whatever, you know? No, it's so they're engaging in why do people resist climate change and the Green New Deal? Who does that? What are the politics around that? There's a lot of places to go there, and how that... Like the company in Monsters Inc. had the vested interest in keeping the scares going, you know? Yeah. It, that's funny. That reminds me of another episode we did where uh, we looked at Sorquana's Loa, which is this math, 17th century? I always forget the order. 1600s. Um, it's this little mini play before the, the full play, and it's full allegory with America and religion and these other characters and I was like inside out inside out right and this like you have these characters standing in for one another so yeah Pixar it, it's definitely a lot deeper than sometimes like you said the students will blame you for ruining a certain <laughs> media for them that's that's what happens <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, building on what, what everyone else said, um, so when students sign up for my graphic novel class, they may have done so very intentionally, or they may have done so because they needed a, a, a writing requirement, and some might not know what a graphic novel is, or they might think that means like adult like graphic um, <laughs> pornography or something. Um, so we talked, we kind of unpacked the terminology and then the, the associations they have with like why call it a comic book or a graphic novel or our Spiegelman calls it comics, um, you know, the mixture of visuals and text. Um, but I think um, some students come in underestimating the genre, thinking it'll be easy, but then what we try to focus on is not just the what of the plot, but the how. Um, how does it look? The longer we sit and look at an image on the overhead, the weirder it seems, the more we notice, the more details we start on, you know, picking apart and dissecting, and that's really fun. Um, 
There's a great YouTube channel I wanted to mention called Strip Panel Naked, which does a really nice job connecting form, style, and meaning, and it's a nice model of, of that kind of deep um, analysis. Probably doesn't um, dissuade them from thinking about right. the graphic narrative <laughs> classes. <laughs> um, strip Panel Naked, and the, the, the creator's name is Hassan something. I think for my students, um, one of the strongest reactions I get, especially um, well, I've taught the America Chavez Volume 1 comics in my Latinas class, and I'll have students come up to me afterward, and, unless they're surprised, because I actually let them vote on some of the readings that we're going to do in class, and the semester that they chose this particular set of comics, I just had students writing to me say, like, Professor, I didn't, I didn't even know there were Latina superheroes. Like, they're seeing themselves represented in these mediums, right? It's not just having to find yourself through some tangential connection, but actually having it in your face like she is a queer Latina. And, you know, in the first set, yeah, she comes from uh, the altar, the, now I forget what it's called, but it's basically she's from another universe. The, and, um, but they do deal with that in the second round of comics and in terms of addressing how that ties in with her Latina. And they love it. They're just like, I, I see this. I see me. I see my family in this. And, and I think that's, that's really important for them as well. So for any of my panelists, do we have questions for one another? <laughs> I'm going to start there. Nothing in particular? All right, well, we can open it up to audience questions as well. Um, anything that you have for us in terms of things that you could do, things that you, maybe if you're a student and not an educator, like how you can bring that into your own work in your classroom, even if it's not focused on that, I think we'd be happy to address any of those things. There are microphones, so help yourself or shout if you want. Use the mic, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, hi, thank you so much. This is just amazing. Um, when you assign comics in the classroom, do you assign them as a reading? So, you know, they have to read the books on their own and then, um, you know, you discuss them in class? Or do you, you know, do it as in-class activities where they might read a snippet and then discuss it as a group. Um, I'm just curious as to how you manage the text themselves. They really want to start. I'll jump. I'll jump in. I'm ready. Um, ready for this. So for me, I would love to have them read something entirely, but we have to be really cognizant of um, cost of materials. So for for my class, I generally just Xerox. Hopefully this is fair use. Um, a couple of pages of something, and they look at it in class, and they work together, and then they fill out um, uh, like kind of a worksheet, and that's homework they can do either online or in class. I have heard of other um, larger, because I'm teaching 30 students at a time maybe, I've heard of larger sociology courses who, who use graphic novels as text in lieu of a textbook. So, for example, they, their reading list was something like American Born Chinese, Mouse, and maybe one other, and they that's what they purchased instead of um, a, a standard 100-level textbook. 
Yeah, I've done both as well. Um, in my my introductory Latin American studies class, uh, we do one unit on U.S. Latinos, and um, for that, I scan a few pages out of a, a much larger book. But in a course that is literature heavy, I will ask them to buy that. And generally, it's it's one volume. You know, that is the tricky thing if you're going through a lot of comics. Say like, oh, go out and buy these twenty comics. And if you want the students to purchase them, or if you even want to get your bookstore to order them in. They generally have to be the collections, right? You can't just be like, oh, everybody go out this Wednesday and buy the new issue that came out. <laughs> so you do have to be aware of that in advance. I don't know for anyone else. Um, I've done like a combination. Um, so for the um, pop culture media course, um, I had them actually buy um, the um, the specific issue for X Men Uncanny, and um, they did the um, digital. So I, I believe at the time, I think it was Comic God Comicsology. Um, so like you know, using like digital media has been a really great way to keep costs down. Um, I've also, if it's going to be like several different comic books or graphic novels, I've done fair use and had a few um, pages uh, um, beforehand. Um, and what I'll usually try to do in almost every course, at least, um, there'll be one graphic novel or comic assigned. So it's like a, it's an actual text, like anything else, on the syllabus. Um, and so in the past, for my Latinx memoir course, I had them read Christy C. Rhodes' Big Passion, and we read the whole thing. Um, that's pretty, uh, I think it's less than $20. It's the one, you know, it's, you know, one of several books they've had to purchase. Um, so yeah, definitely keeping in mind comics, but it's always been, um, it's a sign beforehand on the syllabus, um, just because I think also to get that buy-in to treat it like any other, you know, novel or um, textbook, um, it's good for them to visually see that. Uh, I think my students find that they can very quickly devour these these texts once they start reading them. So then in the classroom, we have to slow down. Um, one challenge, I think, is some of the more interesting independent comics, um, sometimes they're, they become unavailable, like, um, especially by artists of color, unfortunately. I've noticed their availability kind of comes and goes. So you have to be careful about what you assign and the cost. Um, Students are very into web comics, so during the pandemic, we did some things online with web comics, um, but we're never going back there again. Yeah, very similar. I assigned a combination of um, actual comic books to read, which they read before coming to class, and sometimes I'll assign articles by other scholars, so they read that too. And uh, I do have something in mind, like I'll, I'll, I'll pick a budget for when I'm making the syllabus of how much it would cost to get all this stuff. And they know beforehand, this is how many dollars we would have to expend in this course. And for, I, I offer these special sort of case, you know, if you can't do this, come and talk to me. I'm trying to figure out strategies to overcome that. I also um, digitized a lot of stuff, which you probably should miss. And it's in a closed website, so it's not publicly available. Like, uh, like in the case of future past comic book, I scanned it and it's available to students in my course of uh, module and stuff like that. I, I teach at the early college level, so my students are high school juniors and seniors who are actually earning their AA degree alongside their high school diploma, um, and I teach a comic studies class as a literature elective. 
Um, and I found that my students are really actually very willing to dive into the hard parts of the course and really work with the analysis. And that a lot of the pushback or confusion I get isn't necessarily from my students, but more from sometimes my colleagues or even my administrators. Um, and so I was curious to hear if you've had experience where you've received pushback, again, not from students, but more from elsewhere in your institutions, and how you handled that, those pushbacks in your experience. No. <laughs> um, yeah, I, in the past, um, I had an instance where they were like, there's too many comics, or there's too many comic memoirs, and they're like, you have to take this off, and I think at the time, it, uh, they wanted me to take off um, Fun Home, and I was like, no, it's definitely staying on. And then that Dell won the Genius Award. I didn't like run around the department or, you know, send it out, but I definitely felt vindicated. Um, I think it helped um, as I then became an excerpt myself, um, especially since I was able to do a dissertation on comics that also unfortunately, um, you know, adds to the, you know, the cultural wealth and fluency of it. So I think um, in terms of pushing back, um, you know, cite your sources, you know, give, there's just like a total, you know, there, in terms of comic studies and graphic novel studies, there's just so many books, published articles all the time. So like giving a reading list is almost to your administrators perhaps. Um, and letting them see that uh, we are all professionals who are really invested in this and let them know that like anything else, um, uh, it's real literature to be read. Um, and also um, getting input from the students might be something that's also important. You know, maybe part of like the end of the year or mid-semester um, feedback. And that's something else that might be helpful because that's another thing I think administrators listen to is students who are the, you know, the, the customers. So I was part of um, this program that CUNY has been doing for the last, I think last year and this year. Um, it's called Transformative Learning in the Humanities. And so we really have gotten a lot of uh, flexibility with how we approach our classes in a way of making it student-centered learning and sort of, again, as Jennifer was saying, if you could say, hey, look, here's the proof that this stuff does work, that our students are getting something from this then they're going to encourage you to do it and and having them like create their own comics or create a podcast or make a video about this pop culture stuff but bringing in the sociological terms the historical factors etc like literary terms if you can say hey this is this is what i want the students to do they're still going to meet the course goals the requirements that that you maybe as the college have set out or even the pre-college right because that's sort of in that in-between zone where it's like they're still uh, held to a certain rigid, I don't know what the word is, but like it's it's almost like they're policed a little bit more in school in terms of like getting their work done. They have to be, I mean, they have to be both high school students and college students. Right. Really difficult thing for them to navigate and to not be judged yeah, I have a lot of students in that position. We have we call it concurrent enrollment. Am I cool to jump in? Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. So I, who's a community college teacher or qualifies? Okay. Are you familiar with the Mellon ACLS uh, Community College Fellowship Program? It's a wonderful program. Um, so I recommend if you need people to support your project to get that grant because um, I did. 
Anyway, um, no, just, shameless plug, but um, I've been studying fandom and fan culture, especially charity work in fandom, and have a book coming out. I was going to ask about that. Um, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so anyway, it's I haven't faced a lot of resistance, but it really, that lends a lot of legitimacy, and I want everyone to know about this this grant funding. And then, so what a community college faculty is perceived as a legitimate academic and a legitimate researcher, as well as a teaching professor. And getting that kind of publicity really helped me to be able to accomplish what I want to do. But I would say also going to students and providing student feedback, that's going to speak directly, I think, to administrators. Um, how many people are familiar with the Popular Culture Association? PCA, ACA? Okay. So there's also fan studies networks, and there's people like us, y'all, who are nerdy, nerdy, geeky, geeky, academic -y people, and there's all kinds of anything you can think about. There is academics looking at it and talking about it. I think getting something in a journal like that or um, you know, showing that your work with students can benefit them and can kind of raise the profile of your school or your program, um, that helps. Like For me, being able to be covered by local newspapers, they can say, look at this person who got this award and you know, come to, that's why I get to come do stuff like this, so yeah. It's called the Mellon, M-E-L-L-O-N-A-C-L-S, American Council for Council of Learned Societies. Um, and they, unfortunately, I feel like the, the application period just finished. But for next year, there's a specific community college fellowship they started a few years ago. And what it does for us is, is wonderful, is it gives us, we can apply for course release. Because a lot of you may know our teaching load is extremely heavy. And that precludes us from spending time on, you know, transcribing interviews and things like that. So that can help. Um, I'm a college professor at King's College. I taught a course on superheroes and comic books. But I'd like to make two comments. First is, in terms of like access to comic books, one thing that I found useful is that a lot of times I would assign like one graph novel. So like the uh, Dark Phoenix side. And my students would have it for the semester. And then I had a student come up to me first semester I taught it and said, I don't really need this anymore. Would you like it? And I thought that might be a really great resource to kind of build a library so students who couldn't afford it, if I would put it in the syllabus, come see me. I have some extra copies. I would lend them to them. So yeah. I think that is a possible yeah. way of doing that. I'm, the panel that was in here before us, I, they were talking about Lighted, I think, is a website where you can kind of catalog your collection and, and then the students can like check them out and then you can kind of keep tabs on them to get them back at the end of the semester if you, if you so desire. Um, but it got me thinking, like, yeah, I always have these these comic books, and I'm like, oh, you should check this out. But if the student doesn't go out and get it on their own or isn't able to get it out on their own, then they're not going to take that for their final project. But otherwise, I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool here if I can lend it to you, you know. And again, picking and choosing what things you're willing to uh, put out and share with others and which are your sort of precious copies. <laughs> If I could make a second vote, you talk about PCA and CA. Absolutely a great organization. I've done many presentations. I'm part of the comic book 
part of it. And so I highly encourage people to join it. Uh, the next convention is in um, San Antonio uh, next spring. They're taking applications for panels. They are really looking forward to uh, people who do the kind of work that and a regional version. Yeah. Yeah. Nice, regional. And just to say a uh, shout out, also, I know the first year I went, I applied for a travel grant and they covered um, that. So just there are resources for us, those of us who are budgeted, <laughs> limited.